Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be talking about Goodbye, Charlie, Season 6, Episode 12, first aired January 17th, 1990. And the IMDb summary reads, Jessica narrates her newest novel about a bumbling private eye and his girlfriend inadvertently solving a murder by trying to cash in on a dead relative's will. Uh, actually, uh, it's his wife. So there's that. <laughs> Oops, small detail. And let's get into the trivia. This is the fifth bookend episode. And it's the fourth of which, which was supposedly based on one of Jessica's novels. So let's get into the returners. So we have four of them. First of which is Michael Callan, and we will recognize him as Carl Anglin from Murder, She Spoke, season three, episode 22. He was the station owner and the partner to the deceased. Yeah. So... (laughs) He was the one who had the cowboy hat on and was like, what the hell's going on here? When he walked into the studio and the lights went out. Yeah. We next saw him as Sergeant Nash in JB as in Jailbird, season five, episode one. So he was the detective who did not recognize her as Jessica Fletcher, but believed that she was a woman who stole Jessica Fletcher's identity, which was supported by Michael Haggerty and Grady. Yeah, we remember that one. In this episode, he plays Bart Mahoney. Next, we have Brian Cranston. Yes, Walter White. Yes, the father from Malcolm in the Middle. Yes, the same person. We will first recognize him as, oh, he's only been here once before. Okay. <laughs> As Brian East from Menace Anyone, Season 2, Episode 20. And he was the men's tennis star. Well, one of them, but he was the bigger star. There was a younger brat type one. Yeah, which was not Brian. Okay. (laughs) He was the well-respected, a little bit older tennis star who ended up being murdered by accident because... The murderer was trying to kill his fiance. Right. In this episode, he plays Jerry Wilbur. Then we have Bill Maher. We will recognize him because he's Bill Maher, but (laughs) from his one previous episode as Rick Rivers in Fire, Burn, Cauldron, Bubble, season five, episode 13. He was the assistant to Roddy McDowell. I don't remember his character's name. (laughs) But he was responsible for getting press and uh, promotion for the new book about Constance Trahoon. In this episode, he plays Frank Albertson, who is the lead in this episode. And this is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. We then have Robin Bach. And he's played some background characters a few times that have had speaking roles. So first, we met him as the Mater D in Birds of a Feather, season one, episode two. We then met him as Elmsworth, Ellsworth Buffum in Joshua Peabody Died Here, possibly, season two, episode two. And in that one, remember, he was the Joshua Peabody Committee, fan club, historical society, something. He he was there with a court order to stop digging and to stop construction until they could determine if the body, well, the skeleton, or remains, I should say, were in fact Joshua Peabody. Then we met him as Mark in Death Stalks the Big Top, 
season three, episode one. I don't remember what that, what, what who he was for real. Cause he was only in part one. He wasn't in part two. So I believe he was probably involved at, oh no, I know who he was. Morgana, the, yeah, okay, okay. Morgana, who was the mother of, okay, how do I say this? So, <laughs> so the owner of the circus, right? His son, who had went to, who dropped out of Harvard Business School, was married to a woman. The woman's mother is Morgana, a fashion designer in New York City. Her assistant was Mark. So remember when they go to the Hotel Motel Holiday Inn and Mark is speaking for her and saying, well, you know, your presidential suite or whatever, a suite and then a separate room. And the proprietor is like, we ain't got no suites. We got a double connected. That's all we got. If you want it, you got it. But we, I can't create a suite that we ain't got, okay? <laughs> Humbled them real quick. Then we saw him as the hotel clerk named Preston in The Body Politics, season four, episode 22. Now, when Jessica was trying to uh, get her room, I believe they had not... Yeah, I think for some reason they had not reserved her room. It slipped through the cracks, something like that. And her friend, the woman running for Congress, she comes in and speaks with Preston and is like, he doesn't know who she is. Um, the Congresswoman to be or Jessica. And he's like, yeah, we ain't got no rooms. So <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do about that. And in this episode, he plays Lon Ainsley. He is the assistant to the medical examiner slash coroner. And this, unfortunately, is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. So now let's get into the characters and the story. So we have Frank Albertson, Sonny Albertson, Uncle Charlie, Sheriff Ed Tenek, Bart Mahoney, Marsha May Bailey, Tilly Bascom, Jerry Wilbur, Lon Ainsley, Jack Yamoda, Jake, Clarence Doreen. There we go. So I'll say this. This is probably going to be a shorter review. I didn't have any issues. Like, I didn't have any serious rant inducing issues with this episode. It was an easy watch. I wasn't annoyed by anyone except Uncle Charlie. Except Uncle Charlie. Okay. <laughs> we gonna get to that when we get to that. But honestly, I don't think anyone was... Now, it wasn't a great plan, but it wasn't a terrible plan. And we'll get into the details. But... Not a bad episode for what it's worth, considering that Jessica was in the beginning a few times to move the story along. And then at the end, it's still what, what I had, this wasn't going to be a series. So this was not one of the ones that would have turned into a series. And really the way it was set up, there really wasn't, it did not leave the door open because we really didn't see Frank as a private investigator so we had no reason to want to see him as a private investigator because the little bit we saw was not great. So this definitely didn't seem like it would have been a spinoff as a one-off, a book that Jessica wrote. I could get on board with it. It was not a bad episode at all. So let's get into said episode. So Jessica introduces the story and she introduces us to Frank Albertson. Now, she says the hero of our story. Well, he's not really a hero. He's not very heroic, but he's the <laughs> he's the main character. So, here we go. So, we we are in Hollywood, California, and we see a car driving. Now, we don't see either of the drivers at first, 
and a second car that clearly pulls out and follows the first car. Now, the first car goes to a hotel and we see that in the second vehicle, it is in fact Frank, because again, he's a private investigator. So he sees a woman get out of this car, a man walk around and help her out. And they get to the hotel room door. Now, instead of Frank staying in his vehicle and snapping all of the unobstructed photos he can, he pops up in the full broad daylight and says, smile and say cheaters, and begins to take pictures within feet of the husband that he's following and his uh, flavor of the week, okay? So the husband is pissed and goes after him and apparently punches him in the face at least and rips his shirt. Uh, He did not damage his camera, it seems. It seems he didn't damage his camera, but maybe he took out the film because it does not seem like Frank was able to provide photos to his client, okay? And the reason we find this out or figure this out is because a little bit later, Jessica says, as she pops in, that um, his client was a formidable woman and decided to give him a second chance. Okay, so that means to me that he took photos, but those photos were destroyed or unusable for some reason. But he still had a camera the in the next day or two, so... And they definitely weren't in a position for him to buy a new camera. So I'm guessing that the guy didn't damage the camera, just the film. So Frank goes back to his apartment defeated. And he hears his girlfriend and a man in their bedroom. And he's like, Sonny, I'm home. And she's like, oh, okay, come into the bedroom. Like nothing's happening. And they are fully dressed and it's nothing untoward. But she is there with a lawyer. And... The lawyer is stating he represents the estate of a deceased woman. The woman whose name is Liz claims that Charlie Albertson was a former lover and she has left her entire estate, multi-million dollar estate, to him. And the lawyer has found Frank because he cannot find Charlie and he's hoping that Frank can direct him to Charlie. Now, Sonny has been providing the items that Charlie left. So his dog tags from the Navy, his cigar clip, which has his initials on it, and other possessions. Nothing with a photo, nothing with um, any identifying factors. I, I think his name, rank, and... Maybe I don't know what was on his dog tags. We see it briefly later on, but I don't think it had any like further identifiable uh, markings on it or identifying characteristics on it, like his height and weight, eye color, anything like that. But the lawyer believes that Charlie is, uh, that Liz has left her money to, is their Uncle Charlie. And if it is, and Charlie is dead, then all of the money goes to Frank as his only living relative. So the lawyer leaves and they're like, well, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, well, no, the lawyer says, well, here's my card. Call me in five years. You said you haven't seen him in about two and a half years. It required for him to be considered dead. Um, it requires the person to be missing for seven years. So call me in five years and then you can get this money. And the lawyer leaves. Now, Frank starts to laugh a little bit hysterically. And we then get to Jessica and she says, Frank was laughing at the irony of the situation. Charlie had mooched off of them for three years. He came for a weekend stay and remained there for three years. Okay, didn't pay a dime, eating their food, using their electricity, sitting in front of their fan because they didn't look like they had air conditioning. Well, it's Los Angeles. I would hope they had air conditioning, even if it's a window unit. 
But running up their electricity bill, running up their water bill, sitting there scratching himself in his boxers, I'm sure, for three years. And then up and leaves in the middle of the night. They hope he's not dead, but they really don't care either way. And the fact that now he's rich, Charlie is rich. He's out there somewhere, um, unable to be found. And at this point, Frank and Sonny are on their way onto the streets, okay? They're about to be kicked out of their apartment. I don't know what Sonny does for a living because she seems like she's home twiddling her fingers all day. Like, homegirl, get a job. Just saying, just saying. And Frank only has one client who we find out now did not fire him, although he was unsuccessful. She gave him a second chance. So now during the second chance, they, the husband goes to the same Hotel Motel Holiday Inn. Like, I don't know if he owns the place. I don't know if he knows the people who run it. But they went back to the same room. So, of course, Frank goes looking for the car, goes back to this hotel, this motel for real, and parks right next to their car. Like, I don't understand. Like, why weren't you like across the street, down the street, a few parking spots over, rented a car, something to disguise yourself? But he doesn't. He's sitting in his car reading the newspaper, waiting for them to finish their session and come out so he could take photos. And he sees that there is a missing person who vaguely fits the description of Uncle Charlie. Okay, so Frank has an epiphany. But before he can do anything about that, the target and his lady friend come out of the room. The lady friend sees him immediately. It's like, that's that guy from yesterday. So the husband, not this lady's husband, the client's husband goes over to Frank's car. Frank thankfully has the car like basically still running. He flashes the camera flash. Now, I don't know if he takes an actual picture or if he just um, sets off the flash, blinding the husband for a just long enough that Frank can drive off. So Frank goes back to his apartment and he shows the paper to Sonny and he's basically like, listen, we can pretend that this this unclaimed, unidentified person is Uncle Charlie. We can give him a funeral and we can get this money, this millions, okay? At first, Sonny is like, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. And Frank is able to convince her to go along with this. Because he's like, it could be Uncle Charlie. We have no idea. The guy was found on train tracks that were in Huckabee, Nevada, which is apparently 50 miles outside of Reno, which is where the last Christmas card Uncle Charlie sent them was postmarked. So... This convinces Sonny to at least give them a try, right? And because she's like, it could be somebody else's family member. And Frank is like, it's been three days. Okay, it's been three days. No one has claimed the body. It let's, I think this will work. So we then see the medical examiner or coroner's office in Huckabee, Nevada. Now, Frank and Sonny have not left Los Angeles yet. Hollywood, California yet. But they're calling to see, get a description of the body without, because they know that the person's not going to tell them exactly what this person looks like because they're trying to figure out, they want the person who's calling or going to come in to describe the person before they show. You know, it's kind of like when they tell you for rideshare, that when you get in, you don't say your name. You wait for the driver to say your name so that you know it's the right car. Because if you get in and you're like, Monty, and they're going to say yes, whether that's your car or not. Okay, so it's the same with this. They don't want to give out details so you can say, oh, yeah, 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 that's the person, that's the person, and claim the body. Because... You would think, oh, well, somebody, a regular person wouldn't do that for, you know, just anybody. We don't know. Okay. People are crazy. All right. Point blank, period. 
people, well, I won't say crazy. People are strange, okay? Just because a reasonable person would not want to claim somebody else's body that they did not know, we don't know what people are up to, okay? People are different, okay? So as not to be sued, okay, I'm sure that even in Huckabee, Nevada, they're not out here trying to give away information and find out they released a body to somebody for burial. Oh, wait. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take that back. They tried not to do that. Okay. But that doesn't mean that they were successful. So first Frank calls and he has a fake Southern accent and he calls to try to the first to narrow down the description of the person of the corpse. So he finds out that they have no tattoos and that they're older because he says, oh, well, he was a year older than me and I'm about 40. So the medical examiner's assistant says, oh, no, 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 this man is old enough to be your father. So now they know that he's probably in the right age range of in his 60s, which Uncle Charlie is in his 60s with no tattoos. Sonny then calls claiming that she believes it's her father. They find out that the person is on the shorter side, that he is pudgy, and that he has all of his limbs. There's nothing um, outstanding about his limbs. Okay. So Frank is like, well, how did you get the short and pudgy? Like, that was a good call. And she was like, I was describing Uncle Charlie. Yeah. (laughs) So they now it just leads credence to maybe it actually is Uncle Charlie. So Frank and Sonny head on down to Huckabee, Nevada or over to Huckabee, Nevada. And they meet with the sheriff. And... The sheriff says, well, your identification, basically your description of your uncle seems to fit the person we have in the morgue. And um, I will tell you, you know, when he was hit, he was knocked out of his shoes. Um, But if you take any solace in this, it was likely quick. So Frank says, well, no, then the sheriff asks, well, do you know why he would just have been by the train tracks? And Frank makes up a story that Sonny jumps right on to as well, that Uncle Charlie back during the Depression would travel around basically as a hobo, okay? Place to place, pillar to post, I guess pick up a side job to get to the next location and some place to stay. And he would do this by riding the rails. And so the sheriff's like, but his pockets were empty, And Frank is like, what documents does a hobo need? I'm like, but he still had a previous life. See, this is the issue. This is the issue here real quick. So just a bit of a spoiler. Now they are going to go ahead and plant Uncle Charlie's belongings that have his initials on it to give credence to their identification of the body, right? But there's... (laughs) They're saying he's a hobo. Why would he carry anything? So this kind of goes against that, what they said earlier about like, oh, what would a hobo need in their pockets anyway? You know, but they're just about to leave and they're like, okay, yeah, we would really like to have a funeral soon. So if we could wrap this up, the sheriff is like, yeah, normally it wouldn't be a problem, but you're not the first or the second person to claim this body. So (laughs) it's not going to be so easy. So they go to, so Frank and Sonny check into a hotel and Sonny is massaging Frank's back because they had to sleep in the car as they drove from Hollywood, California or Los Angeles. I think they said Los Angeles, um, California to Huckabee, Nevada. And they, the hotel was closed by the time they got there And apparently the proprietor of the hotel closes early because he's like, if you're trying to slip in here at night, you up to no good. So yeah, we shut this down. Okay. (laughs) So Frank is not moved to pack up and go home. Whereas Sunny is. She's like, all right, fine. 
all these people claiming his body. We know we're lying about it. So let's just go home. And Frank is like, no, if there's two, if there's one other person, I'd say, okay, fine. But there's two others. One of those people has to be lying. And I think the fact is both of them are lying. And Sonny's like, and we're not. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. But Frank is like, no, let's, let's ride this out. So Frank had read upside down a name on the sheriff de- sheriff's desk indicating one of the other claimants, who was Bart Mahoney, who is the town's attorney. So not the attorney for the town, but the only attorney in town. Okay. And he's at the bar and they're all singing and everybody knows each other. It's a small town. And he says that the body is Roper Bailey, who is the father of his client, uh, Marcy May Bailey, and that, you know, he was the sole provider for his baby girl and that they're going to, so Frank puts it together, he's going to sue the railroad company. And Bart is like, exactly, because the signal light has been broken and they have not replaced it. So... You know, and Frank is like, but there's a bell. Like, it's not just a light. There's a bell. And Bart is like, did I mention that Roper was deaf? Yeah, he's been deaf for decades. So, yeah, we about to sue. And so Frank is like, how? His face was gone. All right? Because of the being run over by a train. So how is his daughter going to be able to prove the identity? And so Bart is like, you think that the jury's not going to believe his grieving daughter, his little girl? Now, he's making it sound like homegirl is 11. All right, homegirl is not 11. We're going to get to how old she actually is and what she actually looked like. So Frank is a little bit dismayed by this because it's true. If this guy is the sole provider for his little girl and this little 11, 12, 13-year-old girl and pixie tail and pigtails and you know her Sunday dress comes in and testifies about how wonderful her father is and you know what he looked like mind you this man is 66 so I I would be like she can't be that young like I'm sorry but his daughter's probably not that young but Frank is not dismayed to the point of packing up to go home but he is suspicious of Bart, as he should, as he should. But we get back to the ID issue. So Frank then returns to the hotel with Sonny. And Frank is telling Sonny, yeah, I met with Bart Mahoney. And he is basically the local shyster. He's planning to sue the insurance company of the railroad. And at this point, the sheriff calls. Right. They're about to get, you know, have husband and wife activities uh, to make both of them feel better, I guess. Um, whatever. Do you? You in a hotel? Y'all ain't got no kids or responsibilities. Do you? Be on vacation. All right. Now, I don't know anything about Huckabee, Nevada, but listen, if they got air conditioning in that hotel, do you boo. And the sheriff calls before they get into it for real. And he says that he got a call from Bart Mahoney, who is, who claims that Frank claims to be from the train's insurance company. And Frank is like, I never said that. I gave him my card that said I was a private investigator, but I never said that I worked for the train company. He didn't say he didn't either, but I don't, I don't really think he led Bart to believe that he was from the insurance company. But either way, The sheriff is like, I would like you, I need you down in my office in 10 minutes. I think there's a, a, a long lost relative that you may want to meet. And so at the sheriff's office, Frank and Sonny meet Tilly Bascom, who claims that the body is her husband, Mort, and that Mort used to take long walks nightly because he had insomnia and the walks helped him to get to sleep. And Frank asked her, well, why didn't he have any ID? Which is a valid question. And Tilly is like, I have no idea. Maybe the centrifugal force of the 
train knocked everything out of his pockets, which gives Frank an epiphany. So the sheriff is like, well, we searched uh, that entire area, me and my two deputies, and we did not find anything. Or my two deputies did, and they did not find anything. And they were there for hours. And we don't have any additional resources. I only have the two deputies, period. So Frank is like, well, do you have, I forget what, a pony league, which I guess would be little league these days, but a pony league baseball team. And he's like, yeah, my son-in-law is the coach. And so he says, well, do you think they will want to make a few bucks? Like maybe we can use them to search. And so the sheriff is like, of course, who doesn't want to make a few dollars? I'll have them there tomorrow, first thing tomorrow morning. So of course, the night before, so that evening in the dark, Frank and Sonny go along the train tracks. They find around the area where possibly Uncle Charlie, uh, possibly Mort Bascom, possibly Roper Bailey died. Okay. And proceed to throw, well, Frank specifically, proceeds to throw all of the identifying information, um, his watch that was engraved from Liz to Charlie, which was really the, the clincher that their uncle Charlie is the Charlie that Liz left the money to, was that engraved watch. Um, but also his dog tags, also his cigar clipper, which has his initials on it. And there was another item that also had his initials on it. And they, Frank specifically, throws them around and then they leave. The next morning, the baseball players, who are kids, they're kids, it's taking them forever to find anything. Now, we find out that Tilly, whose cousin is Jeremy, and Jeremy is Brian Cranston, okay? So he basically the same age as Tilly, and they real too close. They're really, really too close for cousins, all right, just uncomfortable, okay? <laughs> just saying. And mind you, Tilly is probably in her early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, but I think really early 30s, right? As is Jeremy. Jerry, his name is Jerry. Okay, sorry to Jeremy's. His name is Jerry, okay? And the husband, Mort, is in his late 60s. He's 66 years old, or he's 65 plus. He's 65 plus. He is a senior citizen. Okay? Okay. Everybody's giving a side eye to this situation. So everybody's out there. Tilly is out there. This is when we see her with Jerry and a little too close for comfort. Uh, Bart Mahoney comes down too and he's pissed. He's like, who authorized this search? The sheriff is like, I did. Okay, back off. So the sheriff's not scared of him. He's not paid off by the sheriff. He doesn't pay off the sheriff or anything like that. He is a local attorney and that's it. When Jerry and Tilly are off to the side speaking, Jerry's like, have they found his wallet? No. Tilly says they haven't found his wallet. Maybe they'll find it now. And Jerry's like, they should have found that days ago. Okay, so clearly the wallet was planted. Okay, so that this is our clue that the wallet was planted. And apparently the, the baseball players, the Little League team is not good at playing baseball, nor are they at searching. But finally, 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 they find all of the Charlie Albertson paraphernalia by the tracks. But what we also find out before they make this discovery, when Bart arrives, he is with Marcy May. So she's sitting in the car and she gets out because he has, he left the air on and everything. She was like, why am I in that ice box? And you know, now she got on a short skirt, high heels and uh, frilly socks. Okay, because remember, this is 1990. So she's kind of a tart. So that <laughs> so Frank sees her and Sonny sees her. She's like, wow, 
that's Roper Bailey's little girl. And Frank is like, you think that a jury is going to feel sympathy for her? This is the little girl you were talking about? And Bart is like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, Marcy, get in the car, get in the car. Why did you come out the car? Because <laughs> that, cause that's true. Like, he just wanted to build it up to get people to back off. But now that they've actually seen her, and everybody in town knows that she, you know... Has, her daddy ain't her sole provider. Okay, I'll just put it that way. She has sponsors. One of which is Bart Mahoney, which we find out. Okay, <laughs> gross. Actually, gross. Because um, Homegirl is a good 22 years old. And Bart is a slickster. Easily in his late 50s. So, mm, 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 gross. All right. Now, now for now, they said that, uh, well, we'll get into the specifics that the bartender tells Frank in a minute. So they find all of this, all of Charlie's monogrammed items, right? And the sheriff is like, he's suspicious. The sheriff is suspicious because he's like, I ain't got all of this monogrammed stuff in my pocket. Why does he have all this stuff and how to get all out there? And we searched and, but he's like, you know what? Fine. Okay, fine. He doesn't bring up the fact, like, I thought you were, I thought you said he was a hobo and that's why he ain't had nothing in his pocket. But now you're saying, oh, he had all his worldly possessions in his pockets and they blew out during the accident? Okay, okay. But the sheriff is rightfully suspicious, but he holds his tongue and signs off on the identification of the body as Charlie Albertson and tells them to go down to the coroner's office and sign the documents and they could go ahead and have a small service for him on their way out of town. So they go to the medical examiner's office and the medical examiner has them sign, has Frank sign documents to release the body. He gives him the card for the local funeral home. It's like, tell them, you know, they'll, they'll be able to get you situated and set up for a good price. As they're getting ready to leave, the sheriff pops up and he's like, yeah, so we just arrested a vagrant who, found, who was found with Mort's wallet, Mort Bascom, Tilly's husband, his wallet. And claims that he found it right by the train tracks a few days ago. So the sheriff proceeds to arrest Frank. Now remember, he signed off on these documents claiming that the body belongs to his uncle Charlie. And has received a death certificate based on that. So he's now arrested. While in jail with the vagrant, who we learn his name is Clarence. Um, Clarence has a pair of what appear to be very clean and new white shoes, which he's stuffing with paper because they're too big and proceeds to call Frank a dummy. Okay. And just like, he doesn't like, I, I don't, maybe he's supposed to be on medication, but he does not appear, the Clarence does not appear to be on any drugs or alcohol. He doesn't appear to be that type of unhoused person, but he probably needs some sort of mental health assistance is my guess. That's my guess. As opposed to being on drugs or being drunk, he has his wherewithal to him. So this gives Frank an epiphany. So Frank requests a meeting with the sheriff who does meet with him and says that if the if the person was hit by the train and knocked out of their shoes the shoes would have been at least 100 yards down the track right but they would place neatly next to him so it sounds like his body was dumped next to onto the train tracks the killer noticed that he did not have any shoes on, took off his own shoes, the killer, but and would plan to put them on to the body, but his shoes were too small to fit. And of course, 
Frank is like Uncle Charlie. Uncle Charlie's feet into the shoes. So that's why he waited for the train to to kill Uncle Charlie. And then put the shoes next to the now deceased person. So they then go to the coroner's office. They pull the shoes out of property. And the shoes are in fact too small for the recovered body. So the next scene, now Frank is out and about, okay? And he goes to the bar where he met Bart Mahoney because he noticed that the bartender, Jake, Jack, Jake, yeah, Jake, um, kind of like was holding himself together in disbelief about what Bart was saying about Marcy May and the whole, and Roper Bailey and the whole nine. So we find out from Jake that Roper is in fact Marcy May's father, but he's not her sole provider, that Marcy has been providing for herself since the age of 16, which I'm sure in 1990, after they saw her, they were like, oh yeah, but like, "Mm, that's sad. And that Bart is the one who pays her rent and her bills now. Like, we don't know if he's been paying them since she was 16, but he is her sponsor right now. And we also find out that the bartender, Jake, does not believe that Roper is dead at all because Marcy May has a very specific routine. She shops at Jake's grocery store. Now... At the grocery store, she buys diet soda for her, Mexican beer for her father, chewing gum for her, and chewing tobacco for her father. Now, four or five days after the death, she comes into the grocery store on her regular day and she buys diet soda, Mexican beer, chewing gum, and chewing tobacco. So Frank takes this information back to the sheriff, but what he does first is he sends Sonny to the grocery store because, you know, Jake is the one who gave the information. So he probably gave permission for them to pull the receipt and give Sonny the information from Marcia's receipt because Marcia lives directly across the street from that grocery store and that's why she goes there, which it sounds like it's more of a corner store. But maybe it's a grocery store and because I'm like, what do they eat? Because it didn't say anything about food. Nothing about food. Just soda, beer, gum, tobacco. Okay, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that that's all they get at the grocery store. So the sheriff says, well, if Roper is still alive and he's just hiding out in their attic, you know, with his Mexican beer and a spittoon, then... Marcia had no reason to murder the John Doe. And so Frank says, well, likely Bart thought up the scheme when he read that no one had claimed John Doe. And so, you know, which it's kind of like some looks passing between them. Like, ain't that what you did? Uh, Because the sheriff said, well, he came in the same day you did. So there's that. Because the sheriff is 100% suspicious of Frank and Sonny and their claims that this is Uncle Charlie. Now, he doesn't know what their intentions are or what their reasons are. I don't think he believes that it is um, nefarious, okay, like that they're trying to cover up a murder or something like that. But I'm sure he's put two and two together and figured it might be something financial, maybe a life insurance policy situation. So the sheriff is, well, no, then Frank says, well, that leaves Tilly Bascom. And the sheriff is like, why would she kill him? Like, why why would she do that? And Frank says, because, why would she kill John Doe and pretend that it was her husband? And Frank says, well, maybe they weren't getting along. And she thought that she would lose too much in a divorce. And the sheriff says, well, it was a small company with a very large government contract. So the next scene, they go to the Bascom household. Now, I don't know how they got in the house, but they are surely knocking on the bedroom door. 
and bust up in the bedroom door to find Tilly naked in bed with Jerry, the cousin. Okay, girl, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and the sheriff is like, first they see Tilly, who's like, how, is, how are you just coming to my house? Like, da, 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 get out, get out, get out. Because Frank and Sonny are also there. Okay, what well, that is not legal by any stretch of the imagination, but okay, fine. So the sheriff is like, I'm here to speak to you about the murder of your husband. And at this point, Jerry pops up from under the covers and he's like, I told you this wouldn't work. I told you we couldn't get away with this. And Tilly's like, you idiot. Like they didn't say anything. <laughs> you snitched on yourself. And so... The sheriff is like, who killed your husband? And Tilly is like, he did. He killed my husband. You know, it, it wasn't me. I'm like, he killed your husband, which probably he did. But he killed your husband. And you're trying to claim that you weren't in on it. But you sleeping with him? Like you butt naked in the bed? Just having woken up, been woken up by the police busting in your door after spending the night together, having adult activities, and you would have the sheriff believe that you did not know, you should have said, I don't know what you're talking about. My husband was hit by a train. Point blank, period. He was hit by a train. I don't know what you want me to do. So Tilly, as they're getting ready to leave, Tilly then reveals that Jerry buried Mort in the backyard. So now everyone is confused because they're like, okay, well, then that means that the body on the tracks is not Mort. So they go and they dig up the backyard and lo and behold, they find Mort and he is clearly identifiable. He was apparently shot three times with a 38 caliber gun, hand gun. Okay. And buried in the backyard some time ago. Well, a few days, like before the body was found. So we're back in the sheriff's office with Frank and Sonny and the sheriff. And the sheriff says that Tilly gave a 27-page confession, the longest he's ever seen in his career. And that in it, Tilly admits that she talked her second cousin once removed, Jerry, into killing her husband so that they could take over his company. And that Jerry planted the wallet, Mort's wallet, hoping to... Um, confirm the identification of that unidentified body as Mort because they couldn't just dig him up and present him after Tilly had been telling people he was on a business trip. So this worked out because they're like, okay, great. We'll just pretend it's him. This man, sorry to be graphic. It Well, okay. He's unidentifiable. I won't say how he's unidentifiable. He's unidentifiable. So I can just go and claim I'm his wife. Of course, I would know the parts that I can see are him. So she was obviously one. Bart never thought anybody else was going to claim the body. Tilly didn't, and Jerry didn't think anybody else was going to claim the body. And of course, Frank and Sonny never thought anybody else would claim the body. But the other two had different reasons for that. So... Even though the sheriff says he has very strong doubts about the authenticity, <laughs> okay, sorry about that, authenticity of Frank and Sonny's identification of this body as belonging to Uncle Charlie, the sheriff's like, I'm tired of you people. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of everything. Go on, here is the death certificate. Go on with your business. Go on with your life. Just get out of here. You and that body, get out of here, okay? Have you a nice little funeral service on your way out the town? I want to see you again no more. So they leave. They drive all night, I guess, from Huckabee to Los Angeles to their apartment. This is Frank and Sonny. And while they're like making out, Sonny is like, call the lawyer now. And Frank is like, oh, well, it's Detroit, so it's late. She's like, leave a message on his voicemail that Charlie had a lovely funeral. Let's get this going. You know, we can't wait. And then they hear some glass break. So they go, he gets a golf club. He gets a, well, a putter first. Then he gets like a nine iron or something more substantial and goes into the other room. 
to find who? Uncle freaking Charlie alive and well in his plaid blazer. Okay, and a pink shirt. And a salmon pink shirt. Looking all full of life. Okay, talking about where's my stuff that I left here when I left y'all two and a half years ago in the middle of the night? Where's my stuff? Uh, I got to go to the bathroom. Goes to the bathroom, right? I have no idea how he got into that apartment. He probably still had a key, I guess, from when he was staying there. See, this is why you don't give people keys. Okay, you want to stay here for the weekend? Now, I don't know if he snuck a key out and got a copy. How did he get in your apartment? How did he get in your apartment? And his whole girlfriend in a fur coat, high heels, and a full face of makeup and a bad wig going to come walking out the, the other room talking about, oh, hi, you must be Francis and what, whatever Sonny's and Sandra. I think that's their real names. And they go by nicknames Frank and Sonny. And they're like, hello. She's like, hi, I'm Uncle Charlie's wife, <laughs> Doreen. And they're like, what? So he comes out the bathroom. God knows if he washed his hands, but whatever. That's a different issue. And so he comes out and he's like, yeah, the craziest thing. So an ex-girlfriend of mine died and left me her entire estate, like millions of dollars. So yeah, um, so much money that Doreen and I probably can't spend all of it, but we're going to try. So we're going to Vegas. Okay. Love you. Miss you. Bye. And then he walk, uh, he shakes their hands, thanks them, and walks out. Okay? Okay. You're telling me. I, when I tell you, when I tell you, I would have run up after them. I would have snatched that lady's wig off and her fur, fur coat and that ring. I'm like, y'all leaving this here. Okay? Y'all leaving this here. Now, you ain't stay in my apartment sitting here scratching your nuts for three years, for three freaking years, and you gonna come in here and you got millions and you're not even gonna leave us a few thousand and we just paid for somebody's funeral? I was like, Frank should have, she should have let him, now you shouldn't be killing people, but Frank was like, well, I got a death certificate and you can't die twice. So ain't nobody gonna know. Ain't nobody gonna know. But then Doreen walked in and it's like, oh, you can't really. Because Sonny was like, no, we cannot do that. Be for real. But then when Doreen walked in, you for real, for real, because then, then there's two people and the, yeah, 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 no, you can't, you can't be out here doing that. But I, when I tell you I would have fought with Uncle Charlie, like he literally stole money out of my purse. Okay. If you come back in my house on a sneak tip to try to get your stuff and sneak back out and you done got millions and then I confront you, you bump into me in my apartment and you don't even offer to write me a check. You don't offer to go to the bank in the morning to get a cashier's check, to pull out a duffel bag of cash, and you got millions and you ain't even slipping me some money? Oh, we would have had to fight for real. Because I'm telling you that old man, 66 or whatever, I don't care. We would have fought. I'm not one for violence, but the disrespect. Now, they don't went through all this drama. Now, yes, they were trying to scam, but low-key... They deserve that money because three years and this man just, he came for a weekend and then he stayed and he ain't provide a dime towards the household. He just deducting, deducting, deducting. Okay. Just financially, emotionally, spiritually, like got on your last nerve, danced on it, um, pop locked and dropped it. And you going to tell me you just going to walk in here in the dead of night with your tarted up wife in a fur coat and a diamond ring and be like, I got millions from an ex-girlfriend who even knew and then leave and you didn't even leave me any money. I t went, oof, we would have had to fall. I would have beat that old man like he stole something out of my purse. Like that is... That's the issue I got with this episode. Nothing with the writing, nothing with the circumstances or anything like that. I'm fine with that. It took me some time to watch this episode and having watched it, I don't even know why. I don't even know why. Okay. Not necessarily a huge fan of Bill Maher and his acting. Okay. But this wasn't a bad episode, but I'm pissed about this. And they took it in stride. 
they took it in stride. I think they were so shocked by the fact that he just slipped up and he was alive. He slipped up in there and was going to slip right back out and not say anything, but then had the nerve to be like, ah, y'all have a great life and we're going to Vegas to try to burn all this money. And didn't even leave, left you with a handshake. And was like, thank you for the three years that you let me stay here. Don't be telling me thank you. You better be writing me a check that's not going to bounce. I mean, he should have left a duffel bag cash. I can't. Certain. Mm. Yeah. Any. Anyway. I. That. Pissed. Okay. <laughs> I'm pissed for them. I cannot even believe the audacity of this man to come into their apartment in the dark of night. I think he was going to get his stuff and slip out and not even leave a note. Okay. Anyway, last scene, we go back to Jessica. And so she's like, all right, so the question is, I don't know if y'all wondering, but I hope y'all wondering, who was the John Doe on the tracks? Obviously, Uncle Charlie is alive, right? Mort Bascom was buried in the backyard and they found him. Roper Bailey was hiding in the attic, so they know where he's at. So who's the body that was on the track? And apparently three days later, there was a missing persons ad in the newspaper offering $100,000 for information on the location of Jason T. Rucker, the president of a savings and loan who went missing one day before the state banking authority was coming to do an audit. And they want information on the location of the person he was last seen with, a freight train hopping hobo named Clarence Dobkin. Okay. And they said, they said of what Rucker was wearing, he had on a brown windbreaker, tan pants, and what, what, what white loafers. Does that sound familiar? Do we know a man named Clarence who was a hobo, a freight hopping hobo, who happened to have a pair of white loafers that were too big for him? That he was stuffing with paper? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so the sheriff is reading this in the paper and he has to laugh to himself. He turns and he looks towards where his cells are, which are, I'm sure, behind the door and behind the wall and all that good stuff. And he just laughs to himself because they they just gave a death certificate to Uncle Charlie, right? And this actually is Jason T. Rucker. Now, the thing is, that's not necessarily an issue because they can call up uh, Frank and be like, now, you know, that ain't your uncle. We've identified who it is. And because Frank knows that Charlie is alive, he, they already ripped up the death certificate. So he would be like, oh, okay, fine. We'll just pretend like that didn't happen. If you say it didn't happen, I'll say it didn't happen. We'll never mention this again. That's not going to be a problem because what's Frank going to say? He doesn't want to be arrested. So he, he's going to be like, cool, cool, cool. I'm glad. Go ahead and dig that body up and give it to the family. Now, I do not believe that law enforcement can collect an award or reward, I should say, for finding a criminal. Now, they had him arrested for something, detained on suspicion of murdering the person on the train tracks, or at least robbing him after death. So, you know, there's that. But I, I don't know how that works, or how that worked in 1989, 1990, of whether the reward would have gone to the sheriff's department and they then would have had a hundred thousand dollars to use for sheriff's business because it definitely couldn't go to the sheriff personally because the clearance was arrested in the sheriff and the sheriff's department's capacity as law enforcement but i'm gonna guess that the hundred thousand dollars would be awarded to the sheriff's department for department expenses or it just goes back into whatever fund rewards come from 
But the way the sheriff was laughing was as if somebody writing a hundred thousand dollars check and he's gonna have access to something. Okay. <laughs> and not for nothing, he he was rightfully suspicious the entire time. Um he did not let Bart Mahoney like have any you know, undue influence on him. Okay. He was suspicious of everybody. No one had the upper hand. So he was pretty much fair when it comes down to it. So yeah, I have no complaints about anybody and the role that they played. They played their roles perfectly. I will say the woman who plays Tilly, nothing against the actress but every time and we're going to see her at least two more times that I can think of off the top of my head as both times she plays a wife okay well no no no. one time she plays a wife whose husband is murdered and she's a suspect another one the um boyfriend she's having okay the man is married she's having an affair with him and he ends up murdered Okay, both times when I tell you she is so annoying, just so, so very annoying. Um, But we'll get there when we get there. Okay, here she was, she wasn't seen a lot. So it wasn't as aggravating as uh, when she's part of the main storyline, when it's just the one murder and a smaller set of suspects. And there's not like, three or four interweaved stories going on. But yeah, that's that on that. Not a bad episode at all. Like I said, this is a very short review as of late, but it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, you got you even got a bit of a rant in there too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. For having been in this episode a total of like maybe two minutes, Uncle Charlie is on that list. Now, I love some Charlie Wilson, Uncle Charlie. All right, don't get that twisted. Now, this Uncle Charlie done messed up the name. Just terrible. Just absolutely terrible. Anyway, so that's that on that. So the fact that I have the nerve to have a short episode and then have to tell you guys that Next week, there will not be an episode because uh, I'm going to see Beyonce. So, (laughs) no, it's it's going to be a very busy week at work. And then that weekend, I'm going to see Beyonce. Um, I have not seen a single spoiler. So I am hoping to maintain that record because I want to see it fresh and live and complete and be surprised. So you will receive your next episode on August 6th. Then after that, it will be August 20th. Then after that, it will be the Sunday, September 3rd before Labor Day. And then we're back to every week until the holiday season, November, December. But when we get closer to that, I will let you know. But yeah, so if you need your Fletcher Files fix, there is a Patreon <laughs> link in the description box. And there is content for days, okay? This month, it was Murder on the Orient Express. That was the review that went up this month. Also, a review for Murder at the Murder Mystery Party on Tubi. And a book review for Provence to Die For. Okay? Yes. So all of that, this month alone, just this month alone, July 2023 alone, that's what is up there. So... If you're not on it, get into it. And one last thing before my final send off about where you can find me. I received an email from Hell in a Handbag Productions regarding their performance of Murder Rewrote. 
which looks like it is going to be a hoot. Okay. <laughs> it is, however, in Chicago. So if you are in the Chicago area, check it out and let me know. Okay. I told them if you are going to come to the tri-state area, please let me know. I would love to see the show. So to those who are in Chicago, check it on out. Murder Rewrote. And it runs from August 17th to September 16th, 2023. So that's that on that. Check it out if you're in the area. Until next time, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook Meta at the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook Meta. And of course, in the description box is my Patreon link. Oh, the content of it all. The Fletcher Files Pod on Patreon. Until next time, promise me you will have an amazing, amazing week. If the weather is nice, get out. If it's not, stay in front of your fan or your air conditioning. Nobody is judging you. Live your best life for you. Until next time, because that's surely what I'm about to do. So that's why I'm going to see y'all in two weeks. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys, I will see you next time. Until then, bye.